What's up, everyone? I'm Andrew Steinwald, and this is Zima Red. On this show, we speak with the users, founders, and creatives that are diving into the world of unique digital assets, also called non-fungible tokens. My guest today is Ryan Gill. Ryan is the co-founder of Crucible, which is a protocol for self-sovereign identity. What that means is that Ryan is building a secure, portable digital identity that we will all be using in the metaverse and broader internet. During our conversation, we touch upon his background, the trillion-dollar avatar economy, DAOs, and of course, the metaverse. Ryan oozes authenticity in his mission for building Crucible. During our conversation, you can tell that the open metaverse and self-sovereign identity is something that he's very passionate about, and it's something that is going to be a complete game-changer. Please enjoy my conversation with Ryan Gill. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. Super excited to chat with you. And to get us started, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background. Yeah, first off, this is a long time coming, so thank you for having me on. We've had so many great discussions throughout the years before all the hype cycles picked up. Uh, and it's interesting to see where we're at now. I started in culture, really. I moved to LA you know, with this idea to work in entertainment. I worked in film and television. I wrote a little bit of television. My goal was to be a showrunner for a while, and it was just a grind. So I left that and I sort of pursued startup. And my first foray into startup was actually nothing to do with technology. It was all to do with like consumer products. And I started a vodka that Chris Brown was a creative director and a founder of. We then invented a beverage that prevents hangovers. So uh, that was the perfect complement to the vodka. And I was also curating and producing a tour with Monster Energy. So I broke a lot of talent like Iggy Azalea, Logic, Kendrick Lamar. I would get them like when they were early in the college tour stage. And we would kind of pick them up and put them on their first either nationwide or global tour. So it was kind of like an emerging talent tour. And I honed my skills in being able to like curate and pick what was going to happen next. And then personally, I just got very passionate about technology and innovation. And so I was at Rock Nation and kind of watching peripherally what was happening with Ethereum and decided to make the jump. And very quickly in like the 2016, 17 kind of bull run with the ICOs, just made a really big mark. I was a part of building the ecosystem in LA for the blockchain. I did some work in Tokyo with the blockchain stuff as well. I work with Peter Diamandis, all focused kind of on the Web3, you know, the early stages of what Web3 was becoming and really honed in, I think, on what I'm doing now. That's awesome. Okay, so for those who don't know, could you just quickly describe who Peter Diamandis is and what he's done? Yeah, I think of him as part Elon Musk, part Tony Robbins. He's a thought leader in the space of innovation, really across the board. You might know some of his companies like XPRIZE, which is actually a nonprofit, or Singularity University, which he started with Ray Kurzweil. But he has another 20 companies. Some of them were mining asteroids in space. Others were focused on human longevity and extending lifespans. He's got a media company. He's an advisor and an investor to two or threefold that many companies. And he touches innovation and technology in the most broad way that I think anyone does. And he does it in a way that's very sort of optimistic, but it's a data-driven optimism. I was a big admirer of him and his thinking. He wrote books like Bold and Abundance. And it was really just a thrill to get to you know know him personally and work with him. And it was a very sort of like formative time for me to come from Hollywood. I was really quite cynical of my experiences in Hollywood and entertainment and in the celebrity world. 
and to get to go work with somebody who I admired the way that they thought about the world and the way they executed on some of this optimism. It was really great. It was a great opportunity for me. It was a great experience for me. And it's definitely how I've sort of kind of shaped what it is that I'm doing now. Okay, so what was the initial kind of starting point for when you got attracted to crypto and became more engrossed in the ecosystem? Because you mentioned that you were involved with some groups in LA and stuff like that, that were doing crypto things. So what was that spark that you're like, okay, I need to pay much more attention to this ecosystem? So I had known about Bitcoin through a Wired article about Silk Road. Prior to us all knowing Ross Ulbricht's name, I was fascinated by Silk Road. And I was actually doing some development on a feature film or a television show, something that I wanted to write within that world. And so I was aware of Bitcoin as this sort of digital currency that was used within the Silk Road ecosystem. But I didn't pay much attention to it other than just that from a development perspective when you're breaking story and things like that. Actually, I'll go so far to say I didn't understand the blockchain at that point. I only understood Bitcoin as a currency that was used. It wasn't until Ethereum started to kick up that I started to do the research on the blockchain. And I went back to the Bitcoin white paper and really dove into it. But I was so consumed with the the nightclubs and doing what we did with the vodka stuff, the venues for the shows that we were booking. Like, that was my world. I was in the sort of CAA, WME world. You know, I was working with a lot of VCs that were investing in real consumer products. And, you know, my team that I was working with was a part of the Maloof family office and, you know, had kind of taken inspiration from Beats by Dre and that model of putting celebrities with business. I didn't really dive into the tech until it was later where I started to recognize that what was happening in the Ethereum ecosystem was starting to reflect venture capital in a way that I thought was very interesting. And this new technology was giving kind of a a new pathway for startup capital and just generally crowdsourcing what could actually fund new ideas into the world. So my passion came from when I realized the technology was actually more than just a currency. In a lot of ways, it was this sort of infrastructure, um, you know, that had a lot of promise, but was really supporting entrepreneurialism. Okay, so what was the initial spark that brought you towards the NFT ecosystem? Because I view crypto and NFTs as definitely obviously related, but I view them as kind of separate in the sense that Crypto and the broader crypto ecosystem is a lot about, I'd say, more about financial related companies or projects or protocols. And NFTs, I view a lot more as digital goods or digital stuff. And that could be anything from art to collectibles to gaming and all sorts of different categories. So what is it that inspired you to dive deeper into the NFT space? So I always try to take things from first principles. I look for blue oceans and then I try to understand the technology or the model from a mental model perspective or a first principles perspective. Um, When I was asked by Peter Diamandis to come in and try to create opportunity out of what was happening, I was given the purview to see everything, really, because first off, there's a lot of inbound and people really want Peter to be a part of those projects, but it was also part of my responsibilities to go find the top 1% of what was out there in the world. And I took that as an opportunity to really like not just look at what people were doing and try to react to it, but really understand at the core of the technology what was happening. So the blockchain and the distributed ledger technology is obviously one thing, but then you look at the different interpretations of what the token could reflect, right? So you had, at the time, we were all talking about utility tokens and how 
those had some use and so they weren't securities, but I dove very much into security tokens as well because we were dealing with a lot of accredited investors. But then you looked at like the difference between fungibility and non-fungibility and what those use cases actually offered, right? So fungibility is great for the currency, right? You got the double spend problem is solved and you have some ability to tie a network or a community together in some way that in some instances could actually build the foundation for a new enterprise or a new business or something. But then you had the non-fungible side of things, which was really about unique things and scarcity that is proven, right? So I had always been aware of the differences between these primitives. But as we can all remember, NFTs, at least on the creative side, wasn't happening. It wasn't that long ago. All of this NFT stuff was really just like kind of clip art here and there. And, you know, some artists, like I know Crypto Graffiti from years back in LA, like some of these OGs have been here from the very beginning. And it was very Bitcoin focused, you know, and it was very sort of self-referential in its creative style. But, you know... I kind of felt like the quality of the art was going to get better. And so I always had hopes for it. You know, a lot of us were doing these sort of global circuits of crypto conferences. And, you know, Justin Blau just did an incredible drop last weekend. But, you know, he was six years ago at Korean Blockchain Week. And, you know, we were kind of bouncing around between Hong Kong and Japan and Korea. And there's been so many of us that have worked with this technology for so long believing something that we hadn't seen yet, but knowing the potential of what was possible. And so I think with NFTs, I always just had a hope, you know, for what could come of it. But again, I was from LA, I was a little bit disillusioned because I would be working at places like Rock Nation and I would be on Fairfax and La Brea, you know, and I'd be hanging out with all the homies in the streetwear world and the sneakerhead world of which I've done a lot of work in. And I kept thinking to myself, how do I possibly figure out how to make this technology that is so important, relevant to this culture that is of my generation that I understand because it's perfect for them. But it was very difficult to find that bridge. It was just too overly technical. And it wasn't until very recently that now we start to see that spark of, you know, sneakerheads and collectors start to realize that digital collectibles are a thing and that they're just as exciting. And I think what we're seeing now is this sort of heartbeat of a new renaissance. And this is always what I had hoped would happen. I couldn't have guessed, you know, that it would happen so quickly. You know, I think probably about two and a half, three years ago, I was with people in LA for a mocap motion graphics party that we had out there with the production club talking to all these MoGraph artists and saying, like, you guys realize that you're going to be world builders. You know, eventually you're going to use game engines to build worlds. And this art that you create right now with this governor of, you know, just client services work or just a medium that's short form, you're going to get to completely open that up more. And 90% of them just didn't really understand it at that point. And now it's just been a wave, you know, after Mike did his drop. It's the whole Cinema 4D world you know, the, the whole digital artist and 3D model, you know, skill set has now become the bedrock of the NFT event that's happening. And I think what we see next is, you know, more in fashion with Glow 3D and Marvelous Designer and then eventually gaming, you know, and that, that's what I'm focused on. That's actually a perfect segue for my next question, which is a very, very broad one. What is the open metaverse? Well, everybody knows the term the metaverse from science fiction. There's a big debate on the definition. 
I think, you know, most people will talk about it from a perspective of our metaverse or, you know, the dominant metaverse. Other people want to make the argument that there will be many different metaverses. And when I hear people talk about many different metaverses, it just sounds like a platform to me. You know, it's like a three-dimensional platform. And a lot of times they'll talk about Roblox being the closest to the metaverse. But that's from the perspective of like the company or the shareholder of the company. When we talk about the open metaverse, we get back to this idea from Web 1.0, which is that the internet is for end users. And so if we're thinking about this as a user or a player, then the open metaverse is the third act of the internet over the next 10 years and everything that is available for you to navigate. And we want to think of it that way, you know? So there will be many components to this open metaverse. There will be dominant business models that, you know, come from the open metaverse. I believe we'll see hundreds of billion dollar companies potentially, or hundreds of billion dollar entities or avatars come from this. But the way we talk about this is that the open metaverse is the third act of the internet and it's built upon user sovereignty so that creators and users have full sovereignty and ownership over their data and the things that they contribute. I love that. I really vibe with that kind of thesis of user sovereignty. I think that's super important because my whole thesis is about property rights, but I think those overlap significantly. All right. So is the open metaverse even important? Like, do we actually need one as a society? Yes. I, I think that what comes next is inevitable. And if we copy and paste web two into web three, we got a real fucking problem. You know, I think that there's a lot of unsustainable things that are happening right now around the advertising model and giant servers that collect data. I don't think that the people have really learned the lesson that data is people in disguise quite yet, but I know that the companies know this. And to the way that I think of this is Web3 is Metaverse 1. So as we shift into this Web3 thing, we are also becoming sort of the first iteration of the Metaverse. And so this idea of a Metaverse or an open Metaverse is not a destination in which we can plant a flag at and know that we're getting to. It's a journey that we're already on. And it's a journey that we've been on for a while. 2020 with the pandemic and the lockdown really just accelerated it and stripped everything else away. And so I think it's not a question whether it's important or not. I think it's a question of what kind of future do we want that to look like? And I am encouraged because of the company that I am building. But if I wasn't building this company, I would actually not feel very encouraged. I really want what we're doing to be a catalyst as a rising tide for more of the shared vision that we are talking about to actually you know, come to fruition. Because I don't want to see more platform dominance start to adopt eye tracking and brain computer interfacing and the much more intrusive ways that technology are gonna take over more of our life. I think that is a black mirror potential but I think there's the antithesis to that. I think we have the potential of a white mirror where we get all of that technology, but it is a driver for sovereignty for the individual. And to your point, when you have user sovereignty, you have ownership and property of digital goods. All right, so before diving into your company and what you're building, 
are blockchains and NFTs needed for an open metaverse to exist? You know, we get caught up in terminology sometimes. I, I think, you know, peer-to-peer encrypted networks are, I think, maybe not the specific blockchain called Ethereum, but I think the concept of this encrypted technology, I think decentralization, 100%. All right. So now let's get to what you're building, what you've been working on for the past couple of years. Tell me all about Crucible. What is Crucible and why is it exciting? So coming off the definition of an open metaverse, Crucible is a company and a brand that wants to create blueprints for that. We're in a stage where people are kind of coming to the conclusions on their own based off of how fast the world is moving. But we're a group of people that work backwards from the future that we want. And what we've done is really dive into the technical foundations that will be needed for that. And so we've embraced a standard called self-sovereign identity, which is currently based in the Hyperledger Indie Library. And we've really dove into that community and understanding what it offers. And, and self-sovereign identity offers a portable digital identity with no passwords, a new credential to prove your identity online that is hashed and that is encrypted, and the ability to prove your identity with context for, say, accounts or for relationships, right? So if you think about credentials, we've had government credentials or we've had email credentials online, but you don't own either of those, right? And SSI is the first time that you truly own the credential to prove your identity. And that's like a very big thing that's being kind of adopted across the entire world right now. For example, Estonia is very much moving in this direction with their e-residency. Where SSI has not gone yet is into gaming. And so Crucible is a company that's been the first to do that. We've basically taken the library of code for the standards of self-sovereign identity to prove identity and own it, and then bring that into the game engine, starting with Unreal. And I think what we've done there is unlock the open metaverse, because if you can take your ownership, prove it, and truly have agency over that identity online, and you hand that as tools to game developers that are building all of these worlds and these games, that will make up you know, the internet over the next 10 years. You actually have this sort of technical foundation for user sovereignty. And then through that, you can bring NFTs, you could bring DeFi, because it's all based off of this foundation of user sovereignty. Okay, so I, I wanna dive deeper into self-sovereign identity, because I'm trying to figure out like why is a metaverse identity so important? And I'm thinking about the kind of web two analogy, which is like, okay, I have my email, which isn't really controlled by me. I guess I'm kind of using Gmail. So like Google controls that they can delete it at any time. And then if I go to the physical world, you know, I get my driver's license from like, you know, the DMV. And uh, I guess in theory, yeah, I mean, they totally could just take my license. So like you mentioned something really cool. You're like, this is the first time we've actually been able to have completely self-sovereign identity. So why is it so important? Like, what does that enable? Well, I think it's a blank slate, you know, moving into this open metaverse, moving into web three, having decentralization as a potential now to design societies and companies around, it gives us a blank slate to kind of reimagine what that might look like. And there's a lot of potential with the technology coming up between AR and VR and AI and all the acronyms, but it becomes a very rapid pace into much more of this sort of 
1984-esque future that everybody is kind of always afraid of or has anxiety that that it's coming together it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy well you know to us like self-sovereign identity is kind of the thing that gets in the way of skynet you know it, it gives people the tools for sovereignty on their own it gives them layers on top of that sovereignty to build and accumulate digital wealth and it allows you to build enterprise or a company or an empire right of your own it allows you to own the relationships that you have in your life. Think back on the internet. You don't own any of your relationships. If you build a list or if you build a following on a platform, you don't own that. The platform owns that. And if you want to leave or if they want you to leave, then you start all over again, right? And that's why we probably have 18 to 25 different apps that are all doing the same thing because we build up a following on one, and then we want to start another one, we have to start all over again. Now imagine if you built those relationships, you accumulated that wealth, you accumulated that data, or you built that value directly sovereign to yourself, and you brought it with you to all the different places that you go or the platforms that you use. That's the promise of self-sovereign identity. And it's not just digital. It's also physical as a citizen in the world as somebody who can prove medical insurance, everything about you in data could potentially be owned by you and controlled by you. Okay, that's super powerful. What is the Crucible product going to look like? I'm imagining some sort of like interface that is you know, accessible on my computer and it's kind of like a wallet in some sense where I can have a contact list, I can have kind of my items in there. Could you kind of just kind of describe what the Crucible product looks like? Yeah, so we're kind of shifting into a different paradigm of computing in general. So we have what we call a user agent. And the user agent, it exists across a mobile app, a browser extension, and an SDK. The SDK is for game developers who use a game engine to drop it in. And then there's a game interface as sort of like an overlay that's available in the game or the world that drops that SDK in. And we call this the emergence stack. So this, this product is called emergence. And when you use it, you set up one identity and you set up many personas. So your one identity is Andrew Steinwall. That's you. You prove your identity. And then you can choose how much of that about yourself is out there online, right? So your personal identifying information, you can completely keep it anonymous or you can opt in to share it or monetize it for those who find it valuable. But then you can layer multiple personas over that identity of yours. So you can have photorealistic avatars that look like you that can go do a keynote in some virtual world, or you can manage all of your different avatars for video games, or you can create totally new alter egos with whatever imagination will allow you to do. And you can manage all of those personas in one place, and then you can choose to have those personas configured for certain things. And then the agent will allow you for each identity to have peer-to-peer -peer encrypted communication and commerce between avatars. So I call this economy the direct-to-avatar economy. You know, it's taken from the idea that skin sales in video games is many billions a year. And now we're at the sort of precipice of the fact that the rest of the world's business is figuring out that that's a way to do business. So you have, you know, every fashion company in the world figuring out what their NFTs and their skin strategy is. You also have DJs and musicians doing the same thing. 
And so that is the move into what I call the direct to avatar economy. I think it'll be a trillion dollar digital property economy over 10 years. We want to build it so that there's use of sovereignty in it. And we want to exist as the Shopify of this direct to avatar economy. All right. We have so much to dive into there that that was super cool. Okay. So you mentioned that you can kind of integrate the Crucible product into a browser extension or an SDK. So like, for example, if I'm using CryptoVoxels, which is a browser-based virtual world experience, could I use Crucible, like the whole product there? And then also if I'm building my own metaverse game or whatever type of game, really, what is the incentive for me to build into the Crucible system? So those Ethereum worlds use Unity and we're starting with Unreal, but at our full expression will be available on Unreal, Unity and the web. And so the SDK is available for developers that want to drop it in. And it's an on-ramp to start building native to the metaverse in these ways. And so, yes, in that case, if CryptoVoxels wanted to, they could drop it in and it would almost be like another OAuth option for login. And it would be a layer on top of that game world for the agent to sort of be available. Okay, so that's cool. So I'm a developer, I'm building this cool thing. And I'm just like, you know, what? I don't want to deal with building this whole identity system, this whole kind of peer to peer commerce system. I'm just going to integrate Crucible SDK because it's already built for me. Is that kind of the thought process here? Yeah, I mean, certain developers are interested in different things, right? This is far better account security for in game economies that have like money laundering and issues around hacking. This really solves that this is compliance for GDPR and CCPA and how data is handled. So developers that don't want a a chief compliance officer or even to think about that, this does KYC from the very beginning in the design. So again, if, you know, compliance is an issue with developers and they don't want to think about that, this is all sort of done in the design. But what this is really doing is allowing you to sort of integrate with this direct avatar economy with, you know, NFTs, with DeFi primitives. It allows you to integrate with these things with the click of a button, basically. We want to make this very simple as an on-ramp for developers or publishers or those building with some sort of game engine so that they can integrate and introduce these things and start to build native to the open metaverse, which is, is really just starting now. But the opportunities for that to enhance player acquisition, player retention, you know, we look at things like Fortnite proving that if you build a game cross platform, it can lift revenue by 20, 30, 35%. You know, we know that that's a core business metric that's available now. On the other hand, we know that even though skins are doing, you know, billions a year, 63, 64% of players want to spend more money on those things if there's a real world value because they've learned this real world value over in Web3. So it's really just a matter of time until the user and the player from a bottom up perspective starts to create this momentum and this change in the market. And, you know, what I've done for the last two years is talk to everybody in the industry and identify a spectrum of companies that will resist this and companies that uh, are embracing this and excited about it. And so, you know, for the next year or two, we're really focused on harnessing and, you know, providing these tools for those that are on the spectrum that is excited. Okay. And then also you mentioned that you're able to make multiple personas. So when I'm first kind of logging into the system, I upload all my information like Andrew Steinwald and get verified or whatever, and that's safe. And then if I wanted to hide my identity, I could make one avatar character that's Bob, and then the other one's like Susan, and I could be totally hidden. So Andrew like doesn't have to exist in these worlds. It could be Bob and Susan completely. Why would someone want to do that? What are the advantages of doing so? Well, we're giving people the right to be forgotten if that's what they want. 
you use zero knowledge proofs to move around and, and verify what you need to, but you don't need to share any of your information if you don't want to. Not everybody will do that. But the key is that even if you're anonymous, you're still accountable for your actions. And if you start to do things that are illegal, or if you start to go into roadblocks or a world with children and start to abuse those anonymous privileges, then you're still held accountable because, you know, the self-sovereign identity system gives some level of accountability in the identity. And those things can be handled with law enforcement if it becomes, you know, an issue. And that's always been thought to be sort of a catch-22 where if you're fully anonymous then there's no accountability and you can kind of just do whatever you want to do. And that's always been an issue, especially with games that have children. That makes a ton of sense. Okay. So the direct to avatar economy, I want to dive deeper into this because this is really crazy. So how is this different than my Ethereum wallet interacting with your Ethereum wallet? That's kind of number one. And then also you mentioned like the Shopify, you're building the Shopify for the direct to avatar economy. And I want to dive deeper into that. Yeah. So when we started this, we were kind of like the MetaMask for gaming. That was the idea. MetaMask is this browser extension that allows you to have full custody of your stuff and transfer it and transition into websites or platforms or whatever you need to. But it just kind of stops there. We wanted to add so many more other layers to that that start to look more like Shopify. So how is direct to avatar different than just to Ethereum wallets? Well, the definition of uh, direct to avatar is a fully dematerialized supply chain with digital goods sold to avatars or experiences sold to avatars. Again, if you're in gaming, this is the way that free-to-play business models work, but the world of fashion and music and sports and all of the other industries of the world are learning this now. You know, I've done a lot of work to sort of like, I guess, define and coin this term and put it out there on Forbes. And, you know, I, I did a piece with Packy McCormick and I'll do a lot more. I have, you know, some discussions with different publications in which I want to start to create this pattern recognition for this term. And just like direct to consumer, people probably initially thought, oh, this is a cool fad. Like, you know, how can I use this for marketing? But then we shifted, right? There was a paradigm shift. And now this is how we do business. And then you had native companies like Shopify come from that. And so I think we're at the moment now where people in lockdown are thinking, oh, this is a cool fad, this gaming thing, this this avatar thing. Like, how can I think about this as a marketing strategy? And we're going through the paradigm shift. And I think NFTs is a large part of that, but we will do business this way. And there will be companies native to this moment that are way bigger than anything we've ever seen. And what we wanna do is we recognize the complexity of Web3 and we recognize the barrier to entry for billions of people and millions of developers to try to use that stuff, even though it's very important for the future. And with gaming, there's blockchain and crypto gaming, and it, you know it's a smaller market, but it's really crypto first, most of them. No one's really designed this as a layer for the game developer, you know, to introduce this to the gaming tech stack as a set of tools meant more for like infrastructure that is designed specifically for what a game developer thinks and what their day is like. So we've designed this to be kind of gamer and player first, which is something I think has been missing, you know, for some time. And we're going to spend the next, you know, year to two years working with these developers and, you know, talking with these players to really understand why this matters for them. And then you also mentioned something previously about like a contact list and how 
right now today we're using like Twitter DMs, we're using Telegram, we're using WhatsApp, like all these different chat apps to talk to everyone. But you mentioned that with Crucible, you have this kind of one central location where everyone can talk directly through the application. Could you tell me more about that? Yeah, so we're looking at matrix.org, which is kind of built off WebRTC. And you can kind of just think of it as like a Discord, but decentralized, peer-to-peer encrypted. You get voice, video, text, chat. You can stream viewpoints, but it's all done from me to you directly. And it's all encrypted. So it's secure. And you don't have to worry about whether that platform is going to do anything you don't like or uh, or something's going to happen to it. Um, so we're just going to build these features directly into the agent so that you have the ability to do those things within the interface itself. That's awesome. Okay. So if you had to sum up kind of like what, what is the one liner for Crucible? Because it's it does so many cool and, and incredible things. But like how would you sum it up in, in like a simple like one liner? The tagline is blueprints for the open metaverse. But for people that don't understand that, what I would say is Crucible is a company that wants to bring Web3 into the game engine so developers can build things like NFTs and DeFi into gaming environments. Love that. All right. So are you going to be releasing any sort of crypto token? And if you do, what is the purpose or functionality of that crypto token? Yeah. So this is actually something I haven't really spoken too publicly about. Glad to do it here with you now. We're zooming out and we're, we're recognizing what's happening with NFTs. I've been a pretty strong driver in the community building that's been happening with artists and, you know, finding a way to bring other industries into NFTs. Andrew, I know you're a big part of this and you can tell that there's this sort of heartbeat right now for what we believe is a renaissance. You know, it's early stages, things like last weekend with Blau and Artifact and Fuocious and Grimes, like these are the watersheds. You know, these moments that we'll look back to have like really singularly been the first for these things at that level. And this week, I mean, my inbox is full of A-list celebrities trying to figure this stuff out. And it was almost overnight, you know, and I think Clubhouse has been a really, you know, strong component to how fast this is moving because we do live chat rooms and live Clubhouse rooms during a drop, you know, and you have like Whale Shark in there. That's, you know, putting down million dollar bids while there's a room full of 2000 people and Blau is there talking with his family in the background and the community is all being a part of this thing together. And it's just, I've never felt community this great, this supportive. And I really believe in what's happening. And like I said before, I've seen this happening. I've seen it even down to being able to identify that when people does NFTs, it will be earth shattering and it will put that entire industry on notice to understand that this is now something for them to sell their work and not just do client services anymore. And that's exactly what's happening. And so I want to zoom out and I want to actually create a DAO for this community. I want this community to all be collectively a part of something that they own and that significant economy that's starting to grow is the direct to avatar economy. And this is the heartbeat of that community. This is the heartbeat of that economy. And this is the movement that's happening now. So, you know, we're going to be at one of the business engines and interface moments for this to happen, but we want to establish a DAO and really harness this community together and actually create an economy from this. And so the DAO is called open meta. We'll have a foundation. We'll have more details, you know, to share probably in in the coming months. And this is something that we'll probably announce 
that's available for people to come be a part of in the second half of the year. Oh, that's super exciting. This podcast will come out in like probably two to three weeks. So do you think by then there'll be more public information about it? Or do you think that it'll still take like maybe a couple months away? In a couple of weeks, we'll have published, you know, some of our thinking around this. Outlier Ventures is, is really close family to us. I'm a venture partner there. They were the first money invested and we went through Basecamp. Next month, we will be starting what's called Ascent with them, which is another three-month accelerator specific for this DAO and, you know, the offering that we're going to come out with. So I would say in the next couple of weeks, we'll have, you know, more published on our Substack in terms of how to dive into the details of this a little bit more. But it will be another couple months, you know, until this really kind of becomes a reality. Awesome. Okay. So that actually segues great to my next question, which was, are you raising capital or have you already raised capital? And then tell me about that process. Yeah. You know, we're a UK company. So I have what's called an advanced subscription agreement that I've had rolling for friends and family. And we've raised, you know, a fair amount of money to keep going with that. That is open if people would like to come talk to me about that. But I've just noticed that you know, on the venture capital side of things, I come from that industry and I understand that mindset. And I'm just finding myself looking at the differences between the moment. And on one hand, we have a headwind. And on the other hand, we have a tailwind, you know, and, and the headwind is selling equity to investors who really the model is like, how do we dominate and extract value? And how do we get to this thing where we can sell it for a billion dollars? And you know, that's great. I think I could grind away that way and, and raise money. But I question how many of them really believe in what we're doing, you know, because we're not primarily motivated just by money. We're motivated by this vision, which we think will make even more money. But I need to know that the people in my corner on my cap table believe in this and don't just like to pontificate about Web3 and really believe in platform dominance, you know. And so there's that headwind over there. There's that kind of like, you know, narrow and rocky road. And then on this other side, my inbox every day is getting, you know, filled with people from all over the world that want to buy the token and don't even want the equity and believe in this thing, you know, or at least don't actively disbelieve it. You know, there are like speculators and flippers and they're a part of the ecosystem and we'll, we'll sort of minimize them, but at least they believe in decentralization, you know, and it's a world that they want to support and want to be a part of. And there's just so much more enthusiasm in those meetings. Those people follow up with me several times a week. The VCs, they make me have to chase them. There's just two paths here and they're not mutually exclusive, but I'm really starting to feel like this moment and our vision is much more aligned with this DAO. And I, and I understand that there's risks across the board, but the risk that I've measured and the risk that I feel aligned with that we can minimize is definitely to go out and create this economy and create a really strong business model as a driving force of it. But do this with all of our friends and do this with this entire renaissance that's coming together. That's the future that I want to build. Love that. Okay. So tell me about Outlier Ventures. You mentioned that you're a venture partner there. I'd love to just learn more about Outlier. So I actually just dropped a podcast with Jamie Burke last week. It's on Spotify. If you search my name, Ryan Gill, the podcast is called Founders of Web3. And we actually started something called the Metaverse Show, where we as avatars shot in VR chat the interview. So you can find uh, both the audio podcast and also the Metaverse Show if you look at those. But that'll give you way more backstory. But generally, I, I handpicked, you know, Outlier Ventures very, very specifically 
and with reason because of something that they had thought through, which is the convergence thesis and the convergence stack and the way that they made investments as sort of a software stack for Web3. They hadn't really quite gotten to like the metaverse and the gaming side of it uh, quite yet. And it was a mission for us with Crucible to not just get an investment from them, but and let them understand that the convergence stack was a lot of the network architecture that was needed for the metaverse. Um, and I guess I'll just I'll fast forward to now being a venture partner and having now the outliers formal thesis is the open metaverse. You know, so we were successful with that. Jamie has gotten really very passionate about it and and you know ran with it in so many beautiful ways. He's created 100x art as a sort of metaverse gallery for art that exists across many different virtual worlds. Again, the metaverse thesis is now sort of the core of the Outlier Ventures complete organization and what the accelerator is investing into. And the things that we have planned with this DAO are going to be in lockstep with them. They'll be a part of it moving forward. What is your grand five-year vision with Crucible? If you could kind of fast forward to you know, five years in the future, where would you like to be at? The grand vision is something we call the great game, which is a meta game that is played through the emergence agent. So by using the agent and the sort of like token model, you're actually playing this meta game. And it's a play to earn meta game that will allow you to build and accumulate digital wealth by playing the game or going in and playing games or going into virtual worlds. We want to really tie together what's happening and gamify it, you know, gamify the adoption of user sovereignty, gamify the uh, way that NFTs make their way into game developers' hands, build these new worlds with economies. You know, all of this stuff that's happening has a strong momentum towards the virtual economy. And we want to layer on this great game, you know, that exists both in the digital and physical world, which is a path, you know, a call to action in order to learn all about this stuff and start to accumulate generational digital wealth. Awesome. Okay. So do you have any news or kind of anything that you've been working on behind the scenes that you want to share? Well, the DAO is the big one right now. I think we're at a point where we're really ready to shift our weight to that foot. And so all of the effort that I've been putting on the capital raising side with, you know, the traditional world of VCs and gaming funds, I'm now really excited to embrace the community VCs, the DAOs, you know, the, the groups that truly believe and have been a part foundationally of building this standard to what it is. And as Bitcoin and Ethereum go up, you know, they have more wealth. And I've found that a lot of these people are excited about the potential for where this goes with gaming. And, you know, so not only have we built a business model that I think is very strong and something that differentiates itself, but as a company, we want to zoom out and build this economy. And so anyone who shares this vision from any perspective, be it a video game company, a publisher, a developer, an investor, a speculator, a creator, an artist, a DJ, a fashion designer, if you share this vision, then you have a seat at the table. And through the DAO, we want to open that door for people. And again, we'll just be one of the business engines and one of the driving forces for this, but we hope for it to be a rising tide for a whole generation to now move into this future. Awesome, awesome. All right, Ryan, well, this has just been amazing, but we gotta jump into the closing questions. What is your single favorite NFT that you own? So I just really started collecting recently. And the two that I own is the Artifact Fuocious Sneaker, the drop, and a Beeple Man Christie's edition action figure. 
So is that Fuocious artifact sneaker drop, is that a physical sneaker or is that the NFT and then you also get the sneaker or just there's no physical sneaker whatsoever? It's actually both. You have the NFT and then in several weeks, if you still own the NFT, they're going to ship the actual sneaker, which Fuocious has designed himself, which was a, a dream come true. I did a clubhouse room for something I'm starting now weekly, which is called This Week in the Metaverse. So every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. here in Amsterdam, I will have a stage on Clubhouse in our club, the Open Metaverse, with all of our friends from the headlines coming in and talking about what's going on and, and how important it is. Yesterday was Fuocious, the Artifact Boys, and then uh, my friend Mac, which is Grimes' brother, and he's the one that designed the visual component of that drop. And then, you know, Justin Blau and Slime Sunday were a big part of that conversation as well. So I don't know who it'll be next week yet, but that's going to be something that, that we definitely start doing weekly. That's awesome. All right. What is your most controversial thought relating to NFTs? I think this sunk cost into Ethereum is just a stage that we're in. I think hopefully the full expression of NFTs is really just provable scarcity in digital goods. And I want to see this all get to true sovereign software where it's unreliant to any specific blockchain. It's a portable self-signing token, you know, something that you have full custody of and it doesn't get caught into the politics of which ledger to get locked into. That's super cool. So this kind of token or ID would just travel with you regardless of whatever blockchain it is. It doesn't matter if Ethereum wins, if Polkadot wins or whoever, it's just always on you. Is that kind of right? Yeah. So I'm close with the folks that invented self-sovereign identity and wrote those standards. And, you know, the intention was never to get locked in these ledgers. It was always to really create sovereign ownership of digital things and digital goods. And so what that standard does, and it's in very early implementation, but what it does is it does not solve the double spend problem, but it does solve the chain of custody problem. And so you cannot use this for a currency, but you can use it for what an NFT is important for, which is provable ownership, provable scarcity, you know, and uniqueness. If you could snap your fingers and instantly change or improve one thing in the NFT space, what would it be? Less noise. I think we're headed into a, a pretty strong signal to noise issue. Part of what I want to do both as myself and what we want to do as Crucible is be signal for people. Obviously, when there's big headline numbers with millions of dollars, everybody sort of takes notice and and there's a cacophony of different noise, different voices, people trying to get in and out quick, people trying to extract as much value as they can from it. And it's going to happen just like it always does. But if I could change anything, I would quiet the noise a bit, which might make it feel less exciting. That's possible. But my belief is that just like during the dot-com, people thought the internet was going away. It wasn't, right? The internet is stronger than ever. And the dot-com was a moment. 97% of those dot-com companies went away. And that was the correction. But I think with NFTs, you know, maybe the same 97% of the things happening or making money, the high valued things, maybe they'll go away, but I don't think this community will. I think this community will live on and outlast any hype cycle or any bubble. And that's what I'm going to stay focused on. Awesome. All right. Last question. Where do you see the world of NFTs in three years? I don't know about three years, but I see, I see NFTs being sort of the stepping stones to the metaverse or the snapshots in a, in a small, short form to what will become world building. 
And if you think of it, a crucible as anything, think of it as a scalable business model for world builders. I want like the 20% of the creative class of the world to realize that they have an ungoverned ability to express their creativity in interactive worlds with multiplayer capability and economies, right? And I just don't know what that looks like yet, but I can tell you that what we're focused on at Crucible is if Travis Scott could do an NFT drop in the middle of Fortnite while that game was happening, or if a DJ like Deadmau5 who's building with Unreal could actually go in and create a live set with multiplayer capabilities in this Unreal environment and do an NFT drop in that game while that set is going, while everyone's partying, you know, and bringing brands into that and bringing fashion, you know, companies that do skins and fashion shows into that and just kind of pulling a thread through everything that's happening right now into one experience. Awesome, Ryan. Well, this has just been an absolutely amazing conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time. And I also want to just look back really briefly on what we did discuss. And I think what you're building with Crucible is an incredibly important piece of metaverse infrastructure that I could see being crazily widely used because it is so, so valuable. And also what you're building with the, or potentially going to build with the open meta DAO, that sounds extremely, extremely exciting as well. And so I just want to say thank you for, you know, going out there and building because you're the the builders are the people that are really pushing this space forward. So yeah, I want to say thank you for that and thank you for taking the time. But if people wanted to find out more about yourself and you know find out more about Crucible, where should they go and what should they do? I also want to reflect that back to you because you've been a consistent voice of signal in this for a long time. And I don't feel any change in you, uh, even though we're having incredible hype right now. Uh, I respect you for the consistency and the sort of level-headedness of seeing this in a long-term way. And I think that you do share this vision. So, you know, in front of everyone, you have a direct invite to open meta with both yourself and what you're doing with Asfermian. Uh, you know, you're the kind of people that we really want to not only have aligned with us, but really own this with us, really. So this is a, an invite to you and to everybody else, really, who shares this vision. If you want to contact me, it's ryan at crucible.network. On Twitter, it's at Ryan Crucible. We have a really incredible Telegram group that is building t.me slash open metaverse. And if you go to the website, you can opt in. I'll get you updates. I do them monthly. We're going to be publishing a lot to our Substack, which is slash open metaverse. And the Discord will be opening soon. So it's just the beginning. Awesome, Ryan. Yeah. And thank you so much for that invitation to open meta DAO. A hundred percent. I am there. And thank you so much for taking the time again and talk soon. Thanks, man. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned for more episodes of the Zima Red podcast and subscribe to the Zima Red newsletter for more info on all things NFTs. Thanks so much for listening.